Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. It's good to see you all again. Um, last week, I had a lot of fun up here talking about um, really something that's near and dear to my heart, but that is also the big picture. We basically covered the history of the world in 45 minutes. Uh, basically, uh, that's what we did. We talked about the mission of God in the world. That's what we're calling this series for the summer, the mission of God or Missio Dei. Um, and so I want to do a brief recap before we dive into what we're looking at this week. Um, you remember the last two weeks, here's kind of a quick overview of what we covered. God is the good creator and ruler of all things. We saw at the beginning of Genesis, God created it all. Um, we saw also that man has rebelled. Um, we are rebellious people. Um, it, it's who we are. It's innate in our nature. Um, and, and that because of our rebellion, all of creation has been cursed. It's fallen under the curse of sin. Uh, but we also saw that from the very beginning of Genesis, as soon as Adam and Eve turn and rebel against God, God goes on mission. And he, he goes to re- pursue rebellious people, to bring them back to himself, and to undo the effects of this curse and the fall. Um, and so, just God is on mission. God is on mission. We see that all throughout Scripture, and it really, it ought to be a lens through which we read Scripture as we consider the various stories that make up the Word of God. How is God using David and Goliath to advance his purposes in the earth? Um, how is God, through the Philistines attacking Israel, what, what is God doing? Or through the, the exile in Babylon, what could God be doing to advance his mission there? So, God is on mission. We saw that. Um, And then last week we looked at Genesis 12 and the call of Abram, um, a.k.a. Abraham. Um, And we saw God promised Abraham a couple things. Um, First off, he promised to bless him. He said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless you, make you a great nation. I'm going to, um, you're going to impact the world, Abraham, through your descendants is what he said. Uh, But we saw that it was a conditional promise. God said, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. I'm going to bless you. And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. And so we saw, we begin to see this global theme. Um, Genesis 12, right at the beginning of Scripture, through Abraham and through the people of God, he's going to bless all the earth. And that brings us up to today. Um, That was Genesis 12. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis, first book of the Bible. Today we're going all the way to the end. So if you've got your Bibles, flip to Revelation for me. Um, We're really fast-forwarding. Um, this morning we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5, and I think this, this is really crucial for us to get. If we're not careful, it can be so easy for us to enjoy the blessing of God and to keep it to ourselves. We can quickly become self-absorbed, focused on ourselves, and on enjoying all the good things God has accomplished in Christ, that we forget that there's this missional component that God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so you're going to be a blessing. And that promise, that mission continues to us today. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to pour out my, my favor and my grace and my mercy on you. And all the families of the earth are going to hear about it and respond to it and see it. And so that mission is there. But so often we can forget that because sin still affects us, because our hearts are still selfish. And so today we're going to look at Revelation 5. We're going to look at the end game. And this is the final scene. Uh, we're, we're literally, you know how they tell you when you're growing up and you're in school? Um, I was homeschooled, so this didn't really apply, but um, don't just read the first couple of pages of the book and then flip to the end of the book and see how it ends. 
Um, don't just read the first couple pages and the last couple pages. That's exactly what we're doing this morning. Um, this is frowned upon in school, but here um, it's really going to, I think, help us make sense of the rest of Scripture as we see um, the outset, what God is doing, and as we see the end, what God has finally accomplished. And so let me set the scene for us. We're in Revelation chapter 5 this morning. And what we see in the beginning of chapter 5, um, what we've got is the Apostle John, who was a close friend of Jesus, and, and he's exiled to an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and through the Holy Spirit, he's given this vision of heaven, of the future, of the end of all time. Um, Revelation can be a, a crazy book, and it can cause a lot of controversy. Um, there's a lot of imagery and, and things, a lot of people reading between the lines and stuff. We're not really going to get into that this morning. Um, there, there's a lot of controversy there. Um, and so we're not going to touch that. We're going to stay safe. Um, but we are going to see some of that imagery come into play in Revelation 5 and in Revelation 7. So what we see here in Revelation 5, we see God sitting on the throne. It, it's John talking, um, telling us the vision that the Holy Spirit's giving him. Um, we see God sitting on the throne, and God's got a scroll in his hand. But the scroll's got seven seals on it. And, and John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. That's verse 4. Um, he's weeping because this scroll, is, as we go on through the book of Revelation, you see the scroll is the key to moving forward God's purposes. Um, John's weeping because he realizes that, but they can't find anyone who's worthy to do it. But then in, in verse 5, an angel comes to him, one of the elders, and he says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Those two titles there, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, those, that's some of the revelation imagery that um, without studying, we don't really get. What, what in the world is that? What's going on here? Uh, we're not going to go too in-depth in on what those are. Um, they, they run all the way throughout Scripture, these, these images. Um, but Genesis 49, Jacob's blessing his sons. He's blessing his son Judah, and he talks about how um, Judah is going to have the scepter. He's going to be a, a, a king, an eternal kingdom. And, and so it ties all the way back to Genesis, like we saw last week, this imagery of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, the root of David, same thing, goes all the way back to David in the Old Testament. Um, and, and in the prophets, they talk about uh, the, the root of David, a descendant of David who's filled with the Spirit and will usher in a, a righteous kingdom. Um, and so we, we see the angel talking about these, saying, that guy, he's the one who can open the scroll. He, he's the one we've been looking for. So you don't have to cry anymore because we found the guy. And, and so here's what we get. We get in verse 9 and 10. We're going to skip a couple verses there. But we see John... And he says, he says this in verse 7, verse 8. He says, he, a, a lamb that looked as if it had been slain was standing before the throne. And this is what happens in verse 9 and 10. The lamb takes the scroll. He takes it from the, the king, the one on the throne, and the people break out into this spontaneous worship. And it says this in verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Now I want us to see a couple things here. Things that for some of us will be uh, refreshers. Not, nothing new. Things we talk about every week. But first off, this lamb who was slain. 
what is that? Again, that's imagery. goes back to uh, the, the Passover. goes back to Abraham sacrificing Isaac. God provides a, a lamb for the sacrifice. Uh, this, it goes all the way through Scripture. Crazy imagery here. That really adds a lot of meaning to this passage, but we just don't have the time to um, look at it in depth this morning. But we see the lamb standing as if he had been slain. And if, if we're familiar with the Gospels, as we just walked through the book of Luke, um, John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And, and, and so we know as, as we look at Scripture, this Lamb of God who was slain, this is Christ. This is Jesus who died, who, who was crucified, who was killed. And we talk about it week in and week out. It's nothing new, but there's a reason we keep beating the same drum over and over because this is the centerpiece of our faith. This is the, the core of all that we believe. Christ is the cornerstone. But what's it say? It says, the lamb was slain. Why? Verse 9, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Now, that kind of seems a bit morbid if you don't really know Scripture, right? If, you, if you're not familiar with Jesus and what happened and who he is. The lamb was slain, and, and by his blood he ransomed people for God. So we see that this wasn't just Jesus dying just to die. He wasn't dying for some ideology, for some great beliefs that he thought were true. He was dying for a purpose, and it was to ransom people for God. Um, another translation, I think the NIV says purchase. By your blood, you purchased people for God. And guys, we know, as we, we saw in Genesis a couple weeks ago, we're rebellious to our core. None of us want anything to do with God. Just like you don't have to teach a little kid to rebel and to disobey and to throw a fit when he doesn't get his way, that's each of us. As much as we try to clean ourselves up as we, we grow up and we, we mature, doesn't doesn't really do the trick. And, but we see here, the lamb that was slain ransomed people for God. That means the punishment that was due those people, the lamb took it. The lamb paid the price so that those people could be made right. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And we sang that this this morning, too. Um, we said, This I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Um, that was not planned. We did not compare notes with the worship team. Um, that's just a, a, a divine thing. Um, this morning we were singing about the very things we're looking at here. This Lamb of God whose wounds paid our ransom. He, he purchased us for God. He ransomed us from the slavery we were in to sin and to ourselves and he's ransomed us for God. And so we see, really, in the next verse, the, the, the reach of this ransom, or in the next, next part of this verse. It says this, You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language, and people and nation. And so, pause with me there, and let's remember what we talked about last week with Abraham, Right? God said, in you all families of the earth will be blessed. And we see here this, this Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who, who ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and family and nation. We see the, the two bookends of that global aspect. At the beginning, God promised it. Here we see it's done. And it's done in, in this Lamb. It's done in Christ. Christ is the centerpiece, like I said. Now, this... This global language is nothing new in Scripture. Um, if, if you read your Bible, you will see over and over in Scripture, all nations emphasize, um, all throughout Scripture, 
Every nation, every family, um, God has his eye on the world. Um, and, and in different ways, God goes global. In the Exodus, when he triumphs over the Egyptians, the whole world hears. Um, that's front page news. Um, everyone knows about it, and everyone knows, oh man, this, this guy, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, watch out for him. Um, he goes global. His reputation begins to build all throughout Scripture. Now, if we flip forward a couple pages to Revelations chapter 7, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Um, Revelation 5 was really just set up for us. We saw the Lamb of God who was slain to ransom people from every tribe, tongue, nation. Revelation 7, what we see here, is the end game. We see the people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, and, and we see them all come together. We see it completed. We see what they're doing, what they're giving themselves to. Let's read verses 9 to 12 in Revelation chapter 7. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Guys, can you, like, really, this is far, far out. This is hard for some of us. Some of us aren't very creative or imaginative. Um, you artsy people, this might be easy for you. I'm not that guy. Um, but if we pause for a moment and we don't look at this as just some words on a page, but we actually try to enter into this in our imagination and imagine what the Apostle John was seeing here, it's, it's chilling. It, it gives me goosebumps. As I was preparing, sitting there, I can't even fathom what it must have been like for John. Get this. He says, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. If you're, if you're John, you, you walked with Jesus. You talked with Jesus. You sat and ate with Jesus. You saw Jesus die on a cross and you thought it was all over. Three days later, you saw him again. You saw him again, risen, alive, conquering, victorious. And then you spent some time with him and then you saw him ascend into heaven and send out his disciples to, to make disciples of all nations. Awesome. But if you're John, now John's writing this towards the end of the first century. Okay, so, so Jesus, you know, died in A.D. 30, give or take. John's writing this 50 years, 70 years later. He's an old man now. He's, he's lived his life faithful to the mission of, of Christ. He's made disciples. He's, he's been persecuted. He's exiled on an island because of um, his preaching of Christ. He's, he's paying the price. He's counted the cost. And John gets this glimpse forward into the heavenlies, into the future. And he sees it's worked. It's a family reunion. Like all these people spread across the globe, all that John has given his life to, all that he suffered for and been persecuted for, he gets a glimpse ahead of, of the reward of it. I can't even imagine what it was like for John. Guys, imagine this. 
when John looked forward that day, when he saw that heavenly vision and that multitude, if you're in Jesus, John saw you there 2,000 years ago. You, you were standing in that crowd. You will be standing in that crowd if you are a follower of Christ. And, and John caught a glimpse of this. What a privilege. What a joy it must have been for John at the end of his life, after all this hard work and suffering, to catch this glimpse. Now, there's one other part about this that's cool. There's a lot about this that's cool, but there's one thing I want to highlight for us. We see what this multitude is doing, right? They're standing around the throne, singing the praises of God. The God who saved them, the God who has brought them from death to life, who's adopted them into his family. They're standing around crying out his praises. Salvation belongs to the Lamb, to our God. They're singing his praises. They're worshiping is what they're doing in song. Right? Guys, this is why we were all bought. This is why we were ransomed, is, is to worship. And sometimes on, on a Sunday morning, we worship in song. Um, but our worship is an act, it's a way we live our lives. It's, a, it's the direction of our lives. It's how we, how we raise our kids, how we are honest at work, how we work hard. All these things are different ways of worshiping and honoring the Lord. We were bought to worship. We were ransomed to worship. But I want us to consider one more thing that must have been cool for John. And John may not have even grasped this. Um, but as we look back at history, this is about 2,000 years ago. Right? And John's, like I said, suffered and died and paid a lot. Not died. He's paid a lot to, to get to this point. He's exiled. Now, the gospel bore fruit. It did in that day, in John's life. A lot of people came to know Christ. Um, best historical estimates, at, at the time John caught this glimpse of heaven, probably about a million Christians in the world, give or take a little bit, uh, but probably about a million in the first 50, 80 years after Jesus died. Um, about a million Christians. That's about 1% of the world. 2,000 years later, we look at the same statistics. There's an estimated 2.2 billion Christians in the world. Um, that's about a third of the world. Um, it claims to follow Christ. And, and obviously, I, you can claim to follow Christ and, and not really know Christ. We're not going to get into that. But the gospel has borne fruit. And if in John's day, that crowd would have been about a million. Right now, it would be about 2.2 billion. It's going to be a multitude that no one can even count or number. That's awesome. Like the purposes of God are moving forward. This, this train is moving forward. In, in 2,000 years, it's gone from a million to two, over 2 billion the, the gospel is bearing fruit, guys. This is a reason for us to get excited. This is something that should stir us. Oh my gosh, look what God has done in the last 2,000 years. But I want us to see something here in this crowd of people, this throng around the throne of God. Notice the unity and the diversity of people. Right? First, the unity. We see they're all singing the same song. Right? They're all singing God's praises together. And we also see, and this is, Interesting, there's more imagery here. They're all wearing the same thing. Um, and you look at them, and it's, it's kind of homogeneous. Like, they're all wearing white robes. Uh, kind of bland, it seems like. And there's imagery there. It talks later in Revelation 7 about um, how these guys have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And it symbolizes the, 
the righteousness in Christ and, and uh, the, our justification in Christ. But and we see the unity in the crowd there as they're gathered around the throne for one reason, all together, united in purpose. But at the same time, we see the diversity. We see people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every tongue. Now, this is the audience participation part of today's program. Why do we think God wants that diversity around the throne? Why, why would God want every nation, every tongue, and people, and family represented? Any brave people want to take a stab at that? I know we're not a very responsive crowd here a lot of times, but uh, anyone want to take a stab? Crickets. They all reflect who he is. Good answer. Um, what's that? He does love us. Every single one of us. All peoples and all different tribes and nations. Michelle's answer is good. Um, it's not quite the words I would use. Um, they all reflect who he is. Now, who's traveled? Who's been out of the country? Brief show of hands. A fair amount of us. Okay. Um, if that heavenly throne was all middle-class white people from Munster, pretty boring crowd. Like, no offense. I've got to do some traveling. You guys wouldn't survive in a Haitian church service. It's four or five hours. It's a lot of dancing. There's conga lines involved sometime. Um, it's, it's serious, expressive, responsive worship. And it's, it's not the way we worship. And that's okay. That's totally all right. But like Michelle said, they reflect who God is. And so if you can imagine this huge diversity of people around the throne, each group worshiping God in their own way, it's a much more full picture. It's a full sort of worship. So if you're into band, and I've used this example before, I don't know if it was here, my wife was in marching band in high school. What did you play? The bass clarinet, which I didn't even know was a thing until I married her. Uh, I was not a band guy, like I said, homeschooled. Um, the bass clarinet. Now, if you have an orchestra or a marching band full of bass clarinets, not the most exciting thing in the world, right? Music's pretty boring. Um, if all we had up here was 15 drummers, it'd be pretty loud, but it wouldn't, there wouldn't be a whole lot of distinct notes. It'd be kind of hard for us to follow and sing along with. And, and so when we see a diversity Imagine an orchestra or a symphony. You've got your, your brass and you've got your strings and you've got other ones that I don't know what they're called. Uh, you've, you've got this great diversity of instruments that all together create this incredible noise that just moves us and touches us. As we consider this, this multitude around the throne of God, if it was just us, just people like us, God would be glorified, but the song would not be nearly as full, not nearly as expressive. Something would be missing because all our brothers and sisters from different nations and tribes and tongues would not be there. And so we see that's, that's why this is so important. This global aspect, the tribes, language, peoples, nations. We saw in Revelation 5, we see it here. In Genesis 12, we saw all families of the earth. And guys, this is important for us to get. And, and we talk about it, but I don't know if we always get it. Jesus shed his blood for, he, to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus died for people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, 
I'll confess to you guys, a lot of times, people from other nations and tribes and languages, it's hard for me to connect with them. I can find myself getting really judgmental when people worship in a different way than me, when people eat differently than I do. Um, even, even here in our own nation, when we're talking about different cultures, um, last, last week I went and hung out at Living Words Basketball Ministry. Um, and and it's, it's playing basketball with a lot of African-American teenage, teenagers who come from a different culture than me. Um, and we fielded the first white team to ever play at the basketball ministry. That was kind of fun. We lost both games, of course. Um, but I found myself as I was there um, having a hard time connecting with these guys. And, and then I found myself, instead of being humble and trying to work through those differences and connect, I found myself getting judgmental and saying, oh, it's, it's their problem. You know, they're, they're proud or they're arrogant or they don't want to connect or they're selfish. Or, and I found myself putting it off on them. And in that, in that moment, I was convicted of Jesus died for people from this culture. Jesus died for people from every culture. And, and we're so quick to get up on our high horse, especially it seems in the church, when we have our certain way we like to do things, um, next week, we might have a choir here. We never have a choir here. That could be weird for some of us, right? Um, especially if there's clapping involved, we may not be able to stay on board. Um, but it will be a new expression of worship to God, a different expression, not what we're used to, but a glorious thing. Is God is worshiped through this different style, through a different cultural avenue. And so we've got we've to get this. Now, when we talk about Jesus dying for every people, or every people group, um, that's not language we always use. That really only gets used in the church, it seems like, this idea of people groups, or peoples. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, there's a field of science called ethnography. Anyone know what ethnography is? Study of ethnicity. Good guess. You did not know, but you guessed, and that's brave. Um, it is. It's studying different cultures, different groups of people. Um, that's what ethnographers do. Now, in like science, ethnographers tell us that there's over 16,000 different groups of people in the world, grouped by culture, by language, by religion, by customs. There's a lot of different things they use to group them. Um, and, and if you look up statistics, depending on where you go, that number might vary slightly because different people use different things to categorize but roughly 16,000 groups of people, people groups in the world, all unique, all distinct from each other. How many have not yet been reached with the gospel? Anyone have any idea? No one's that brave. Uh, the site I looked up, um, the International Missions Board, that's the Southern Baptist denomination. They do great research on this sort of stuff. They estimate 6,958 people groups have never heard the name of Christ. Just under 7,000 out of 16,000 have never heard the gospel. That means they, they haven't even had a chance to hear of Jesus, much less respond to Jesus. That's a lot. Now, if, if, if we stop and consider the weight of that just for a minute, remember this, this multitude around the throne? that John saw, the fact that 7,000 people groups haven't heard of Christ yet 
means that if the world ended today, 41% of those people groups wouldn't be there. That multitude would be almost cut in half because the gospel hasn't gotten to them. They're without hope. Now, can we pull up that screenshot, Sarah? Were you able to get that? And this is just a visual for us. Um, it's, I thought about drawing this by hand, like we've drawn stuff the past couple weeks, but it would have taken me a while. Um, these are the distinct people groups of the world. Um, each little dot represents the approximate center of a people group. And you got three different colors there. Um, green, that bluish-green color, that's people groups with a substantial amount of Christians, Christ followers. That means an established church, a significant percentage of people following Jesus. Um, basically, enough gospel resources in that people group for them to evangelize the rest of their people group. So our culture would be one of those. Um, the yellow is nominal Christian people groups, where there's a little bit of knowledge about Christ. I think the statistic is 2 to 5% of people claim to be um, evangelical Christians. They claim to be Christ followers. We see a lot of yellow spread out there, a lot of yellow in Europe um, because of how, how the gospel has really moved out of Europe and secularism has moved in. Um, but we see a lot of red, don't we? Red is the unreached people groups of the world. That means under 2% of the people claim to be Christ. And we could further split that up to unengaged people groups, which means there's no known effort to take the gospel to them. There's about 3,000 people groups in the world who we don't know of anyone trying to bring the gospel to them. Um, and we see how those, those red groups are mostly centralized in Asia, the Middle East, North Africa. Um, it's what's commonly referred to as the 1040 window a lot of unreached people who've never had a chance to hear of Christ. So, like I said, if, if the world ended right this moment, 41% of the people groups in the world wouldn't be present around the throne. They would not have got the gospel. And that should stop us. That should stir us. That can cause guilt. And, and we're, going to, we're going to confront that a little bit later. Um, we don't want guilt to be a driving force for us. It should never be when it comes to Christ. Um, but that should stop us in our tracks. It, something's not quite right. Why, why haven't they heard? Who's going to them? Why aren't we all going? Um, it should stir us up. So, like I said, if, if it ended today, they're not there. But we know that it's not going. The world will not end today. Um, I don't care who's predicting. I know there's all sorts of blood moons and different things going on. And people like to make a game out of guessing when the world's going to end. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, to his disciples, he made it pretty clear. He said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. A lot of the world has not yet heard the gospel of the kingdom. And so from where I sit, I don't think the end's coming anytime soon. Jesus made it pretty clear. He said the gospel is going to go to every nation, to every people group, and then the end will come. So I want us to notice something important here. Um, this task, it's, it's measurable. We can tell how far we've gotten. And it's completable. right? If, if Jesus said the gospel needs to go to every nation and we've gotten to 9,000, give or take a few, we've still got 7,000 more to go. Um, there's a lot of work left to be done. But notice it's completable. That's important for us because we, we can tend to, like there's a lot of commands in scriptures that don't seem completable. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
you're going to be doing that forever. Like, that is not completable. You never reach the point where it's like, all right, I accomplished it, I'm done. You're going to be doing that forever. It's, it, it's com- but this task is completable. This mission is completable. It's doable. And we're close, guys. We're getting close. There's a thousand churches for every people group in the world. A thousand. That means all we need to do is, is mobilize a little bit. We've got to get going. We've got to take some action. But there's, there's plenty of resources for us to see this mission completed in our lifetime, which is incredible. A lot of people have claimed that in the past. Until you start looking at numbers, it doesn't seem like it. It's totally doable. Absolutely doable. Now, we're going to close up here, and I want to talk about a couple of ways we respond to this. Um, First off, our response to this Guys, I want to see this vision of John in Revelation 7. I want to see it fuel us. We talked last week about stories and how they shape us and define who we are and what we do. This is the end of our story. This is what ought to be shaping us and fueling us. The gospel, good news for all nations, it's meant to shape us. I want to see this fuel us. Church, friends, family, let's, let's live for this. And I know that sounds big and we might not know how right now, but let's begin to ask questions and pursue how do we let this vision shape the way we live our lives today? How do we let it influence our decisions and, and the way we spend our money and our time? Here's a couple of, couple of responses. Number one, we give our lives to this eagerly. When we think about what we've talked about these past few weeks and we think about the vision John had, guys, it should fill us with joy that we get to be a part of this. God has been doing something for thousands and thousands of years, and we're so close to finishing it. We should give our lives to this eagerly. And we saw last week how the gospel motivates us to do this. As we see God pursuing us in Jesus, we become pursuers of people. We take the initiative. We go to them just as Christ came to us. So we give ourselves to this eagerly for two reasons. For the glory of God, so that God gets this diverse worship he deserves, and for the good of people. As a lot of times I think we don't really believe the gospel is hope for people of the world. We, we, I think we tend to put our faith in politics or in, in social justice or in education. Like if everyone just had a good education, then the world would be a better place. Or if, if we just had the right president sitting in the White House then the world would be a better place. It's those sorts of things, they show something about our hearts and what we believe the hope is for the world. The hope is in the gospel. The hope for every people group is in the gospel. And, and as the gospel is preached and as Christ is made known and loved and treasured in different groups of people around the world, the world will be changed. Make no mistake about it. The poor will be cared for. The, the widows will be cared for. Um, peace will come. The kingdom of God will be expressed in different people groups. So how do we respond? We give our lives to this eagerly. Secondly, we give our lives to this confidently. Anyone ever had a sure bet? Don't raise your hand if you're a gambler. Um, people say there's no such thing as a safe bet. Um, this is a safe bet. Family, this is going to happen. I 100% guarantee that this will take place. So we can give our lives to this confidently. Now, 
I think a good example of this, well, let, me, let me say preface it with something. What this means, the fact that it's a safe bet, is that any cost, any pain we have to go through to make this happen, any sacrifice or any going without that we need to do to see this vision become a reality, it's going to be worth it. We know that. I can die for Christ taking him to, to the Berber people in Western Sahara. I could literally die and know it's worth it. Because someday those Berbers are going to be around the throne with me. It, it means whatever the cost, you're guaranteed it's worth it if Christ is going to become treasured among the peoples of the world. I think uh, an, an analogy is pregnancy. Um, raise your hand if you are pregnant right now. One, two, couple. Just a couple. Okay, raise your hand if you've had a... Women, raise your hand if you've had a baby. Women, men, please keep that to yourselves. Okay, raise your hand if you've had more than one child and keep it up just for a second. Quite a few, quite a few of us. So you women especially know what I'm talking about here. You have one baby and you hear stories about pregnancy. Um, We've been married for a year, so we've gotten the when are you going to have children question a million times. You You have one child, you go through pregnancy and it varies with different people, but there's a lot of painful things that happen with pregnancy, right? Right? Morning sickness, uh, let alone the actual delivery of the baby. Uh, There's a lot of pain and cost involved. But you women who've had more than one baby, you you knew the cost. You you know what pregnancy's like, but for some reason you still choose to to have another child. You you still keep having children. Why? Because you know... (laughs) Some of us can't seem to stop. I'm not going to point fingers. Um, why do we do that? Because we know that the, the reward far outweighs the cost. Am I right? Mothers with many children, it's, it's worth the cost of pregnancy to have another child in your family. Amen, Shauna. It's the same here. It is worth the cost. It's worth going without. It's worth giving up an entertainment budget if it means the gospel can be preached to another nation. It's worth going, picking up your family, leaving everyone you know and love, and moving to a faraway land. Whatever the cost, however big it is, it's worth it. And you can be confident in that because this is a guaranteed outcome. It will happen. So we give our lives to it eagerly. We give our lives to this mission confidently. We give our lives to it intentionally. And this is important for us because nothing of any real value happens unless we're intentional about it. You're not going to get in shape unless you're intentional about eating right and exercising, right? Nothing that really matters happens unless we're intentional about it. And so this means we need wisdom and we need to think through and strategize how we can best live our lives to see this vision become a reality. Maybe that means we we eat rice and beans three or four times a week so that we're spending less money on food and giving more money to, to see the gospel go forward. Maybe it means we, we get rid of cable. Maybe it means we move to Egypt. It could mean anything. I'm not prescribing anything for each of us, but it means we need to dig through these things and see how can I be intentional about making my life count for the sake of the gospel, to see God glorified in the nations. So we give our lives to this eagerly, confidently, intentionally, and lastly, we give our lives to this communally. That word community means as a community, we give our lives to this. 
Last week we talked about how the whole point of the gospel was to create a new people who, who live a different sort of life. Right? That's the church. That's the people of God. That's us. That's the point of the gospel. God is creating a people for himself. In Titus 2 it says he's, he's purifying a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That is what God is doing. And, and God wants every nation represented in that people. The reality, guys, is we can do a heck of a lot more together than we can on our own. We have various gifts, various abilities that the Lord has given us that as a church, we, we have a full expression of those things. I have certain gifts. I could go out and try to plant churches in Nepal with Paul and Donna, and we might see some success. But if we got 150 people from Mercy Hill on board, all giving and going and using their gifts, man, that's, the, the impact is multiplied a lot. So it, that means globally, but I want to give us a quick tangible, couple quick tangible examples as we wrap up here. What does this mean for our lives day to day? There's a couple of really easy ways for us to impact the nations right here, right where we're at. Number one is something we've talked about for a while. It's, it's international students. Um, we've been talking about that here, about trying to get involved with international students. At Purdue Cal, 40 nations represented. Um, there's 200-something Chinese people, 200-something um, Saudi Arabians. Uh, these people, many of them are probably coming from unreached people groups. Um, these are places where it's hard for the gospel to um, take root and to flourish. And by opening up our homes and loving and welcoming them, bringing them into our communal family life, they have opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond. And as they respond, then they have opportunity to go home and to see this ripple effect happen across their culture. So international students is a huge opportunity for us. Um, two other ones. Um, did you know that in Munster, there are, these are all foreign-born populations. There's 485 Indians, 270 Yugoslavians, 198 Serbians, 165 Italians, 86 Chinese, 80 Thais, 29 Lebanese, 15 Egyptians, 15 Cubans, 14 Jordanians, all in Munster, right here. A, a lot of those people are coming from places where the gospel has no presence. Jordan, there's a church. That's great, but there's a, unreached people groups in Jordan. Burma is one of the most close countries in the world, and there's 15 Burmese people living in Munster right now. Um, Thailand, not much gospel witness in Thailand. There's 30 Thai, Thai people living in Munster right now. They could be your neighbors. But unless we open our eyes and, and we're looking for this, we're being intentional, we're going to miss it. I mean, if you don't live in Munster, I guarantee you it's the same in whatever town you're in. And I can show you where to get that information if you're curious. Um, but the nations have come to us. They live among us. And we can, we can see new people groups represented around the throne of God for eternity by loving our literal neighbors, these people who are in our own towns and cities. Lastly, and I think this is a big, it, it's a really simple example, but I think f for me it just really struck me as something really practical. Um, especially, I can imagine if you're a stay-at-home mom, uh, you can hear something like this and you can say, how, what am I supposed to do? Or How can my life count? Um, I'm busy with the kids. It's, I don't have much free time to myself. Money's tight. Um, someone mentioned to me a few weeks ago that all summer long, Centennial Park, right up Calumet Avenue, um, 
every night, a lot of Muslim women take their children there and hang out at the park. Uh, Muslim women, because of Islamic culture, um, they can't relate to men very much in public. Um, they're husbands, but no men outside of that. And so these women congregate together with their children, probably stay-at-home moms like a lot of people here, and they go hang out at the park most nights in, at Centennial Park. Stay-at-home moms, that's a phenomenal opportunity for you to reach the nations by taking your kids to the park. It's, it sounds crazy, but if, if a few people from here were willing to say, it might be hard, it might be awkward, we've got to cross cultures, and, and I don't know how to interact with Muslims, go hang out at the park. If a few people did that, we would have an opportunity to see Muslims, to see other nations reach right here in our midst. As, as a stay-at-home mom, um, your effect on the nations can still be significant. Um, we've just got to think through what it looks like in different situations. And so, guys, I, I'm going to pray. We're going to wrap it up. Um, but I want to encourage us to, to think through these things. We talk, every church talks about missions and talks about the nations, and it can seem like something so far out there. It's, it's a world away, literally. We're so concerned with what we've got going on. We can impact the nations with how we live life every day. Guys, we can live our lives in a way that someday there will be a, a multitude that no one can count around the throne singing the praises of Jesus. That's awesome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have been working out this plan for millennia. God, for centuries and centuries, you've been creating a people. You've been redeeming lost, rebellious people for your own possession. You've been making us into a new family called the church. And we, we thank you first for your grace, Lord, that you, would, um, that you would make a way through Christ. And we thank you that you extended that grace to each one of us, and you've adopted us and brought us into your family. God, we pray that um, this, this image, this vision that the Apostle John had would weigh heavy on our hearts. Lord, that we would long to see that day come, that as we see the brokenness of the world, we would not just write it off and be okay with the status quo, but that it would create in us a longing for your kingdom to come and for, for the new heavens and the new earth when all is made right. God, I pray for each one of us that you would help us to be intentional about leveraging our lives for the sake of the gospel. That our time and our money and our families and our energy would be shaped around the mission of what you're doing in the world. God, you are good, and we want to see you exalted by all peoples, by every nation, in every tongue. And we pray that you would speed that onward, Lord, that you would make that happen, make it a reality in our day and in our time. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.